This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. I always say to people, you want to be an innovator in financial markets, one of the most regulated markets in the world, show the regulator that you can do their job at least as well or provide at least as much and then have at it. everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Empire. We have Santiago co-hosting this one, and we are very lucky today. We are joined by the best dressed guest, that's a mouthful, we have ever had on Empire. We have the former chairman of the SEC, Mr. Jay Clayton. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's nice to be with you both. Awesome. Awesome. Santiago, uh, you and me are feeling like real scrubs right now without our suit and tie. I know. I, I, I don't usually wear a tie or suit, but I still have them in my closet. But I can't remember. I mean, I, I think I still remember my first Bitcoin meetup in 2012, and I was at JP Morgan. I go down to the Soho Center, the Bitcoin Soho Center, and they all look at me and said, you definitely have the wrong room. So, but anyways, more than welcome here, Jay. I think you bring a, a the industry is becoming more professional. So I think you're the embodiment of the new people that are coming into the industry, which is great to I, see. I don't know. I like to say I have a binary wardrobe. It's either this or flip-flops and a bathing suit. So that's uh, that's what you get. <laughs> Hopefully more days in the uh in the uh, in the flip flops uh, than before these days. So, but Jay, I want to. Um, we're gonna talk all things crypto. Obviously, really excited to get your takes on some things. You had this. You had this amazing op-ed in the Wall Street Journal uh, a couple of months ago titled "America's Future Depends on Blockchain." We'll talk about that. But before getting into crypto uh, and digital assets and blockchain, I actually wanted to go back and revisit. There's this one story. You spent 25 years at Sullivan and Cromwell on the private side. There's one story I just had to ask you about, which is the financial crisis, right? 2007, 2008, you advised Bear Stearns on kind of their fire sale to JP Morgan, Barclays and their purchase of Lehman Brothers, Goldman, uh, and their whole deal with uh, Berkshire. Were there any lessons that you learned during the financial crisis in advising on these like very, what I would call maybe high powered deals? Any lessons that you learned during that time that have really stuck with you? Uh, sure. There, there, there always are in times of stress. You know, you, you learn a lot in a, in a short amount of time. But one thing that I think we all learned uh, that then was beneficial was how important it was to quickly stabilize short-term funding markets. And that uh, came to the fore in March of 2020. So March of 2020, we shut down the economy. At that time, no one really knew just how widespread the effects of doing that would be. Uh, but as, as is almost always the case, some large macroeconomic move immediately manifests itself in the funding markets. And you saw a flight to quality, um, which could in itself be destabilizing. There were a number of us uh, who had been around during the 2007, 2008 period, who had the view that had government acted faster in 2007, 2008, things would not have been as bad. And what we did was we took the tools that were eventually used in 2008, 2009, and said, 
let's apply them promptly and see if we can stabilize these things. And it actually, I, I take my hat off to the, you know, Steven Mnuchin, uh, Jay Powell, uh, the folks on the Hill who worked with us. Uh, the market stabilized amazingly quickly. Corporates were able to term out their debt. And, and you saw that the economy adjusted uh, from a service economy to a goods economy without a lot of friction. Um, we're now living with some of that. Uh, maybe we spent too much money. Maybe we didn't do things uh, perfectly. But that was a lesson learned that at the time, let's just say March to June, uh, was, uh, was, very, was very beneficial. There was muscle memory. Yeah. So you would call what happened in March of 2020 uh, a, a big success in terms of stabilizing the economy and, and just getting everyone on their feet. And it really took only like 90 days, which was, as you put it, very quick. So, yeah, I mean, I'll put it into two categories. There was the monetary policy side, stabilize the funding markets because every market ties back to the funding markets. It's just the way it is. And then on the fiscal side, keep the consumer at some level of confidence. So that's what the CARES Act did. So those two things together, you know, uh, limited the amount of disequilibrium in the U.S. economy. And I would even posit that that greatly helped the world economy. Yeah, we had Do Kwon on the podcast the other day. I don't know if you know Do Kwon or if you've heard of the Terra ecosystem in crypto, but one of the fascinating things about Terra is they've built this entire open market uh, without a centralized entity. And obviously other folks in, in crypto have done this as well. And this is really what has come to be known as, as DeFi, right? You're building right. a lot of these financial applications uh, without a centralized entity, but even bigger, a lot of these ecosystems are now building these open market operations without the centralized entity, like a central banker. Obviously, sometimes things don't go as well and maybe you have, there's a hack and someone has to step in or whatever it may be. But um, it sounds like one of your takeaways from 2007, 2008 is how, and from March of 2020 is how quickly we were able to kind of stabilize the markets in these, by acting in these open markets. What is your, when you see this happening in crypto without a centralized entity, does this excite you? Does this scare you? What are, you, what are your like gut feelings when, when you're seeing all of this play out? Well, what do we use centralized entities for? Um, we just talked about one, which is sort of macro policy matters, whether it's monetary or fiscal policy. Uh, the, the folks who think that you could have a world of decentralized finance, um, I think ignore or, or choose not to accept just how already integrated, how important, um, and how powerful having a, a central bank-based system is in terms of uh, stability, confidence, all of those types of things. We, we can all argue about whether they use that power correctly or not, um, et cetera, but it's, but it's pretty fun. And then on the, what I would say is on the product-specific side, uh, how much, what I would say is confidence and resilience you need to have, confidence in and how much resilience there needs to be in a DeFi system for one key area, which is responsibility. When something goes wrong, when the rules of the game are not followed, uh, think of a theft. I, mean, I think there was something overnight along those lines. Who, who is the responsible entity? Or is it caveat emptor for everybody participating that there'll be some unanticipated event? Um, you could have something that works on that basis, but it would be hard to see something working across the consumer financial system where you had that type of uh, 
risk borne by all participants. Mm. I think if I'm putting my crypto builder hat on here, I would counter that and say, well, what we've seen in crypto is when you have a big hack, like there's this thing called wormhole that got hacked, instead of someone like the Fed jumping in and having to backstop it, and this government participant jumping in and maybe printing money to backstop it, or whatever it actually looks like on the back end. In crypto, it's because it's completely open markets, the person who jumped into back it was jump capital because mm -hmm. they have such a and and they're incentivized to stop it. And we had we had a hack yesterday. It was like this Ronin thing, and um, massive massive hack. And whoever comes into backstop that, it might be Axie, it might be Delphi, it might whoever it, it might be Andreessen Horowitz, whoever it is. Though it's they're they're going to be heavily incentivized to backstop it in kind of these free markets instead of what maybe it looks like in traditional capital markets, where someone like the government, who's not actually a as much of a player in the like capitalistic free markets jumps in. I think you have a good point, and I think it's applicable in certain markets. I don't know that that perspective will carry the day in our traditional retail finance markets, in our consumer mm. lending type markets. Uh, the reason is, is also a political one. We, we long ago um, departed from caveat emptor for what I would say is essential retail credit matters. I mean, look at how, look at how much documentation and regulation there is around mortgages, right? We're we're, we're not going to shift to a a a decentralized um, caveat on tour mortgage market. I just that's a, we can think about it, we can postulate, uh, but I doubt that will happen. I like to think about you know one of the things in my conversation with regulators is, you know. There is this sort of gap where most people, some folks within crypto say, let's just blow up the existing financial system. As we know, we can't trust centralized institutions. It's sort of very utopian, not very practical. I think that sentiment is, and that has become sort of a minority thinking amongst crypto participants. The, the industry has grown up, you know, it's less hobbyists, it's more professional folks coming into the fold that understand the benefits of this technology, like the internet, that just is streamlining streamlining a lot of operations. So it's not to say that Wall Street or certain institutions um, are gonna are gonna go away. There is still probably some degree of centralization, but at least you can streamline, bring more accountability, more transparency to certain systems like the financial system. That that back to two thousand eight, you know, likely the extent by which the markets kind of didn't understand what was going on and what institutions and the amount of exposure that they had probably wouldn't have happened if you had a decentralized system where you could on-chain verify a lot of these things, right? If you had the Abacus instrument that Goldman was, you know, selling, well, if that was on-chain, you could have understood the exposure and who the participants were. Privacy is a concern. So this is, this is where I think DeFi fits in as a new payments rail, a new financial rail that is adopted by banks. Because, you know, as you point out, there's a lot of operational, you know, fluff that and compliance stuff that could probably go away if you have a public transparent blockchain. I'm curious to get your take on how do you see these two worlds coexisting, um, from, both from a regulatory perspective, but also from an industry perspective uh, in your, from your vantage point. Yeah, and and Santiago, you you actually just captured using using the mortgage um, market as as a basis exactly how I feel about where crypto technology is going to make 
a transformational difference. And, and if you look at that market, I said, look, we're never going to turn that over to a caveat mTOR market. The government is going to monitor it. The government is going to um, regulate it. But the amount of uh, friction, both on time and on process in that market, and even though you have all of those frictions over time and over process, the lack of transparency and real-time data in that market is pretty remarkable. And you can see, um, you know, blockchain, crypto uh, technology, whatever we want to call it, tokenization, and it's what I like to refer to it, um, transforming that market uh, to an amazing extent and actually achieving the regulatory goals uh, to a greater extent. So, you, you know, I always say to people, you want to be an innovator in financial markets, one of the most regulated markets in the world, show the regulator that you can do their job at least as well or provide at least as much, and then have at it. That, that is, and I think the mortgage market, the, uh, whether it's residential, commercial, is ripe for, for exactly that kind of transformation. Mm-hmm. How, from your perspective over the years, do you think that that narrative and sentiment, like where are we in, in, in that sentiment being the majority on the Hill uh, amongst these government agencies? Yeah, look, look, at, look at how much has changed in the last 12 months. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the op-ed that I wrote uh, in the journal about bringing uh, blockchain technology to our core funding markets and how much efficiency that would add. 12 months ago, most central banks, crypto was a, what I would say was a scary and you know, somewhat, you know, people may say dirty word. Um, now, most central banks, and, and you, you see this in Europe and you certainly see it in Asia, um, are you know, embracing the idea that crypto is, that, that crypto is going to be part of uh, the core plumbing in the, in the, in the global funding markets. It, 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 it's almost a 180 degree switch in less than a year. If they have that perspective, they're gonna be much more receptive the crypto coming to the product markets. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you. A lot of times, um, crypto folks can be can can commit the fault of being defensive and overpromising and very idealistic, especially when we're talking to regulators uh, and even hostile. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen that we can do better as an industry to to strike dialogue with regulators uh, and people that might be a little bit skeptical? Um, for everyone out there listening, because I think there's a lot of growing interest to, I think this to, to speak with the regulators, sometimes it can be daunting, but um, invariably, I think sometimes we go and talk to them like you're talking to like your parents and you know you've committed a fault almost. Yeah, I, I think the, and, and it's an understandable error, uh, if you want to call it an error or, or, or perspective, which is people in the community um, understand the efficiency power of this technology to such an extent that they're like, hey, regulator, we're, we're going to save consumers 50 or 100 basis points across these products. Think about those benefits and kind of blow by some of the things that are really important to regulators. Um, and it ranges from the prudential, which is, you know, is there too much credit? 
to the national security, you know, AML, KYC, to, you know, a focus of my old agency, which is um, investor and consumer protection. Uh, you know, there is no amount of efficiency that is going to let a regulator put that responsibility to the side. So that's why I say you at least whenever you're in front of a regulator, whether it's a prudential regulator, national security regulator, consumer investor oriented regulator, you have to respect the fact that that's their first job, maintaining that level of protection. And then if you can, if you can do that and achieve efficiencies, have at it. The, the crypto community said, look, there's a trade-off here. Let's make it. You know, let's, 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 let's take on a little bit of AML risk. Let's take on a little bit of KYC risk because we're adding so much efficiency to the system. It's, it's one perspective, but it's not a perspective that's going to win the day. Would you say that the, the main priority and concern and perhaps perspective that we should be playing up is, is consumer protection? I think it's, I think you have to be, so if you're talking to, let's just be clear, if you're talking to the Fed or the banking regulators, that's, consumer protection is important, but the most important thing is stability, financial stability. If you're talking to the treasury or you're, talk, or you're talking to, to, to some other folks, the most important thing is AML, KYC, you know, Bank Secrecy Act. If you're talking to the SEC, CFTC, CFPB, it's the retail participant in the marketplace, and are they protected? So it depends on who you're talking to across our patchwork work of regulation. But I believe, I do believe it's, it's not that hard to bring the incredible efficiencies of, of crypto technology into and accommodate all of those perspectives. Stablecoin, you can see the mindset switch on stablecoin. People, people know how scalable it is because it has scale. There's no need for a sandbox. We have a real live experiment going on where um, you know, stablecoin is the link between crypto assets and the incumbent financial system. Mm-hmm. It's highly scaled, highly efficient, working really well. And what you see in the president's executive order is, let's bring that into that prudential regulatory system so that we're confident that it's not over levered, um, that consumers are protected, um, and that you can have some kind of permissioning system so it's not being used for terrorist finance and the like. I believe the president's executive order recognizes that that's possible and is probably coming. I do want to talk about the executive order with you, but one thing I just, so you're talking about these different agencies, right? And each one is, is kind of concerned with a different thing. Maybe the SEC is concerned with like consumer protection. Someone else is concerned with stabilization of the system. Everyone's got their kind of their, their end all be all, their one sentence that they really care about. It's, it strikes me that no one is concerned about maybe uh, leveling the playing field or like income inequality in the system right now. And one thing, I think it's great that the SEC focuses on consumer protection. Uh, and you talk about this caveat mTOR and like buyer beware, right? But how do you draw the line? How do you think about what's the right level of that? Because if you take maybe like the accredited investor might be a good thing to double click on that. That's obviously gotten a lot of flack uh, in the in the past couple of years because it's kind of pushed kind of the smaller people, uh, the, maybe the retail folks, out of this massive upside on the venture side of the markets. Yeah. So how do you protect? And and then they're left just maybe participating in the IPO and the public markets once a lot of the juice has already been squeezed out of the lemon. So how do you think about that? So I, I that is something that has very much bothered me. Um, what what 
at, at the end of the day, when I think about any regulatory move, I think, okay, middle-class investor from, from a, what does this mean for them in term? And, and I, let me, let me give you some stats that'll, that'll be amazing to you. I think will, will be interesting. Um, and then I'll come back to your specific question, if you don't mind. During my tenure at the commission, uh, fines, um, penalties, uh, disgorgement, other types of remedies ran about four to $5 billion a year um, in, in very much the name of protection of the markets and protection of, of retail investors. And we returned a larger portion of that to actual investors than had been done in the past. I feel great about it. You know, people are like, you know, what were you soft on? Were you soft on crime? Were you soft on transgressions? Actually, no. We had the highest amount um, returned, highest amount uh, collected, and I don't. Nobody really complained that they were overly uh, uh, a burden. Five billion. Let's just say there's ten trillion in retail assets invested in our markets. If if I have my math right, and you save those people fifty basis points, on average across the marketplace. That's $50 billion a year, 10 times what you get from a vigorous enforcement program in terms of returns to investors. Not saying you shouldn't have the vigorous enforcement program, but think of the power of that kind of efficiency. That's what we need to be thinking about bringing to middle-class consumers, investors every single day. And we've done a good job of that in the public equity markets. They sit side by side, pay about the same costs. Um, you know, overtime costs for trading, costs for access to products have come down. Um, to your very good point, the cost of access for the middle-class American to the private markets is prohibitive. And the, co and the cost of accessing a middle-class American from the entrepreneur's point of view is prohibitive. In, in a world where we have the technology that we do, including what crypto does, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And we have to find a way, I, I had some proposals um, to allow middle-class investors access to the private markets. Look, look, look at a 401k plan, which is almost all public equities debt and cash compared to a well-managed pension fund, which has all of those, but also has some meaningful sliver Maybe it's 5%, maybe it's as much as 15, 20% in alternatives. Why, why we can't offer that to a retail investor is absolutely beyond me. And in fact, we can, we just have to figure out how to do it. And I'll just say a political thing here. There are people in various, who do not like the non-public markets. And they do not like the non-public markets because they're not as uber transparent as the public markets, but let's, let's recognize that the public markets are built and what we've added to the public market regulation built for enormous companies. They're no longer built for mid-sized and small companies. So we have to have an alternative if we're gonna have a thriving economy. Don't, don't ruin that alternative. That alternative has done so much in terms of innovation and like, just find a way to give retail people fair access to it. Yeah, 
I feel like, Jay, I, I got to say, I think you just walked into my next question, which is we've built, we just created a system over the last decade where instead of having private markets for the first 10 years, you raise a bunch of venture money and then you, and then you raise growth stage and then you IPO and then now you've got retail getting access to the public markets. We've built an industry with crypto where uh, now you have public markets almost from day one, which obviously has a lot of downside. Imagine if Uber was public the day that they launched that stock would have been trading up and down 99% every single year, right? So there's obviously a massive amount of volatility and, and, and downside with that. But the upside is it gives users and retail access to these private markets earlier on. So why, what is the worry and wh why, why is it so hard to do things like access tokens and invest in tokens? And like, what is the concern there if there's so much love for public markets and hatred of the private markets well, we just created a way to have public markets go earlier. Well, it, it comes down to a fundamental point in our uh, security system, which is information asymmetry. What we decided, and, it's, and it has served us incredibly well, incredibly well, is that if you're going to go broadly out to the public, you have to put the broad public, both in the initial distribution and in trading, on a level playing field with the company insiders. And we're not gonna, we're not going to get rid of that. Okay. You're not gonna, we're not gonna have a system where you can go out and raise hundreds of millions of dollars for a project from anonymous people who trade amongst themselves and buy with the expectation of liquidity without having that level information playing field. That's not gonna change. Okay. And and, and it shouldn't. It it has worked really well. Um, you, you can argue that we've made the cost of participating in that higher than it should be. I mean, if you look back at prospectuses and annual reports when I first started, you know, they were under 100 pages uh, for the uh, initial public offering perspective or prospectus. And you know, quarterly reports were you know, 20, 30 pages. Annual report might be another 100 pages. What we have today is a very cumbersome system built for large companies, like I said. We could try to pull that back a bit, but let's go to the private markets. What's the notion in the private markets is that if you have a sophisticated investor between the um, venture, uh, you know, and whoever whoever is the ultimate beneficial owner. So when a pension plan invests in a venture, it's for the benefit of, you know, the the participants in the pension plan, you have a sophisticated investor. We can, we can figure out how to do that, I think, fairly easily. So, yeah. All right, everyone, quick break from the show to share a big update from our friends at Paraswap, the best platform to stake, swap, trade, farm, and more. Paraswap just launched gas refunds. Based on how much you stake, you can now get up to 100% of your gas refunded on all of your swaps on Paraswap. This is huge for anyone who has spent a lot of time in DeFi, or maybe it's just starting out, you know how egregiously expensive the gas transactions can get. The gas fees are ridiculous at some points in time, and now you can get those entirely refunded on Paraswap. To participate, all you need to do is stake a minimum of 500 PSP. Big shout out to the Paraswap DAO for making these refunds possible. Really, it's just, it's tough to be Paraswap right now. They give you the best prices, 
Uh, they save you money. You've got this gas refund if you stake PSP. They've got a smooth and really user-friendly interface, fast swapping. It's really everything that you'd want from a DeFi platform. If you don't use them already, check out Paraswap today at paraswap.io. Now let's get back to the show. I want to um, I want to turn to a topic that has been kind of front and center around this. Um, you know, you talk about um, asymmetries of information and protecting you know market participants against market manipulation and all these sort of things. One of the things that has been tr- tried over the years is uh, an ETF, particularly a Bitcoin ETF. It keeps getting rejected. Uh, around you might be more privy to this th- than I have, but my understanding is it, it, they keep making the argument that the market's kind of not very robust and it's subject to manipulation and all kinds of things. Seems to be a lot of interest and appetite from folks that want to get exposure to to this asset class, and so I am curious what your thoughts are on on an ETF um, and and why why the hesitation, especially where we are now. It seems like the you know the industry is pretty robust now. Look, I think when the market, the trading markets, for we'll just use Bitcoin, um, were in their incipient stages. Uh, themselves decentralized, you know, multiple venues around the globe, some with lots of liquidity, some with little liquidity, et cetera. The, the idea um, that underlies uh, an ETF like that, that y- you, you can be confident that the pricing um, for the ETF is, is not manipulable, that was a legitimate, I think a very legitimate concern of mine of uh, the regulators. I mean, th- think about it. You, know, you had all of these different, ve- name another product that trades on a dozen, that would trade on a dozen venues, some with very little surveillance. There, there wasn't one. Um, but as what I would say is, as that the trading in that market has matured and like anything become more centralized, um, you know, the, those arguments become, or those considerations become uh, much less acute. So I think we, I th- I think we, are, we are trending toward uh, what I'll say is spot markets that are more reliable and therefore can be the basis for a product. Can we ask you for a, a prediction here, Jay, if you had to put a timeline on it? <sighs> you know, uh, what, what I will say, and, and, in, and in fairness, you know, this is, this is, this is not new. Um, regulatory timeframes are always difficult to predict because they're, they're, they're a function of the issues of the day, right? There was a lot that I wanted to get done in 2020 that I just didn't have an opportunity to do because I had to deal with, uh, you know, markets that were destabilized and making sure that whatever pandemic responses, uh, we had operationally and from a market perspective, had to be taken care of. So, you know, it, it is always difficult to predict timelines. But I, but I do say, I, I'd be interested in your guys' view. Don't you think that what I would say is spot Bitcoin trading is much more reliable from the perspective of manipulation concerns, um, leverage concerns, and the like than it was three years ago? Absolutely. But in the same way that it's I mean, you could compare it to the gold markets, I think, right? And I think there are just some big investors who, or maybe the 
you know, my 70 year old father who just wants like a Bitcoin ETF to buy and doesn't want to go uh, custody his own Bitcoin um, right. in the same way that he doesn't want to buy gold. He wants to buy GLD. So, um, Jay, when you look at I, I just want to be conscious of time. I know we only have a couple of minutes left here. Um, when you look at things like the BlockFi $100 million fine, again, I don't, I, I'm not sure if this is still open or if this is a closed case. So I don't know if you can talk about it. M my gut reaction when I see that, I love BlockFi. I've been a fan of them since day one. They get this $100 million lawsuit. Then you have some like shady crypto companies and like the long tail of some of these weird DeFi things that there's no attention on them. Why is someone like BlockFi who wants to work with the regulators or the Coinbase Lend product that wasn't able to get to market? Why are these the focus? when they're trying to work with the regulators instead of some of these like shadier long tail of crypto. Now, I, I think that what you saw in the BlockFi settlement was a company that says, okay, you know, let's try and find a path forward where I can, I can check the regulatory box, which has value. Yeah. Uh, that's just one item there in terms of, you know, looking across the globe, because this is, this is a global, what I would say is crypto, et cetera, is a global phenomenon, right? There's the, it, it's part, part, of, part of its attraction is it's borderless. Part of regulation is it's limited to borders. Uh, you, have to what, you, you are going to see um, similar companies not subject to the same uh, scrutiny from an enforcement point of view. And it's just a matter of jurisdiction, bandwidth, and the like. There's there's no inherent unfairness in that. It's you know who draws the attention, etc. And people people who are um, you know similarly situated and one is uh, subject to uh, a regulatory action in some jurisdiction and the other isn't. The one who isn't you know may be getting a pass for the moment. Doesn't mean they're going to get a pass over time. In fact, if if you see someone who is a similar situated product, you know subject to an enforcement action, you better expect that that may come for you. And, and what's interesting about this from, from my perspective is we're going to see consolidation. We're going to see integration in um, what I would say is the traditional financial system and uh, we'll call it the, the digital crypto. We're, we're going to see that. That regulatory question, do you have legacy regulatory concerns, is going to be a consideration in that consolidation. People will, as always, take some regulatory risk in a new area, but they won't take what I would say is acute legacy regulatory risk. Yeah. Do you think that Gary Gensler is doing a good job with this? Not a good job? Like if you were hit... I don't know if that's a too politically charged uh, question there, but uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, here, on that? Here's what I'll say about these jobs. <laughs> you, you don't know how hard they are till you sit in the seat. I can and imagine. You, and, 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 you, and you face these different things. Yeah. So there, look, there are some things where I don't agree uh, with the direction that, uh, you know, the, the current uh, SEC is going, but there are very few. I mean, those are, there are, there are very few. Um, uh, what I would like to see more of is more cooperation across those federal regulators. We started this podcast noting the interests of the Fed, the Treasury, the OCC, the FDIC, SEC. 
um, the EO is a good step in that direction. But many, you know, there's a lot of products that span the jurisdiction of all those entities. I, I'd like to see some more um, cooperation across across the government. Yeah. All right. Two last questions here, and then we can uh, let you let you get on with your day. Uh, Biden had this exec order on March 9th uh, that basically laid out like six policy objectives: consumer protection, financial stability, use of crypto for illicit crimes. Uh, what were the other three? Financial inclusiveness, responsible innovation, and there was one other. Oh, U.S. competitiveness. When there was Jeremy Allaire, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Circle, tweeted out that this was this watershed moment comparable to 1996-1997 when the government woke up to crypto. He said, this is the government waking up to crypto. And it was generally seen as this really positive uh, executive order for the crypto industry. Did you have the same interpretation of this? And like, was there a specific theme that stood out to you in this executive order? The theme that stood out to me was a recognition that the technology that has been proven to be scalable and resilient by what I would say is the rise of crypto is going to come to uh, not just the incumbent financial system, uh, but other aspects of our life. Gaming, gambling, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a number of things where, it, where it's going to, to come. And it is a, and then a recognition that that is a competitiveness issue. Put it, putting my you know, US hat on, which is really important to me, we won the internet race. I, I, what I would say is the FANG stocks are a result of the incredible human capital, investment capital that focused on that transition to you know, what I would say is a, <laughs> the internet being the backbone of our consumer uh, economy. Yeah. We, 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 and we did great. We want to do that again in this space. And I think there's, there's a recognition in the EO that that's where we are. Yeah, well, that's really exciting to hear. I mean, I think a lot of people sometimes get lost in, in the narratives and the, you know, the headlines. But my appreciation has always been that regulators really, at least in the U.S., really want to push innovation forward. And it's been kind of interesting and ex- exciting to see that there is that growing support that they recognize now that this is probably perhaps as equally as important as the internet and it's important to regulate it sensibly and look for what it's worth, you know, India, China, some other countries have been much more aggressive in clamping down on crypto and then, and then backtracking. Whereas the U S you know, for all there is, there's always regulatory walls of worry that we've had to climb over the years in this industry for as long as I remember. But you know, if you look at the actual data, you know, the U S has been in a very much let's understand this, Let's talk to market participants and 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 kind of buy us some time as this industry, uh, you know, matures a little bit and certainly clamp down, as you say, on reg- on legacy regulatory stuff. You know, there, anytime there's fraud, anytime there's, you know, just blatant scams. And yeah, definitely clamp down on that. And I think no one in this industry would disagree with that. I think most people within crypto would say we need regulation. We need more clarity because there's so many people that are on the sidelines. But hopefully we can get there soon. Yeah, and, and let's go back to um, U.S. competitiveness because this is this is just really important to me. The uh, the global use of the dollar as as the you know as not just the currency of trade, but also as the you know kind of stable store of value in both the short and the long term is an enormous benefit to the U.S. and you know the way the U.S. has uh, been a sound like a uh, 
uh, you know, a flag waving person here, but I am in this. And the way the U.S. has responsibly administered the dollar globally, you know, for trade, has been a fabulous thing. But if it, if the technology, or what I would say is using that dollar-based investment and trade network doesn't keep up, that's at risk. Jay, this is such a good segue into the last thing I wanted to get your take on, which is stable coins. There, this is uh, um, this is not a black and white issue. It's a massive spectrum, I would call it. On one end of the spectrum, you have CBDCs that are not even really on a blockchain, I would call them. Then pushing further on the spectrum, you have CBDCs maybe issued on something like Ethereum. At the very other end of this, maybe in the middle, you have something like USDC, which is this like regulated stable coin backed by fiat reserves. And then on the other end of it, you have something maybe like Terra's uh, stable coin, or maybe even pushing further, you have like Frax and these decentralized stable coins. When you talk about, or there's this, there's this guy, Jim Bianco, who we had, had on the podcast uh, maybe a month or so ago, and he was making the claim, the argument, I would say, that the government won't actually allow these privately issued stable coins to scale because of the maybe potential systematic risk in the case of a bank run, something like USDC. And that's why some folks in crypto are so excited about these very decentralized stable coins. What is the what are the what is the regulators take on something like a USDC and then pushing even farther on the spectrum? What is their take on something like these decentralized stable coins? In the time we have left, let's try to break that down. One thing about a, a USDC or any central bank digital currency is there's a fundamental change if you're going to adopt that, which is the central bank now has privity, direct connection with the consumer. That is something that I'm not sure if I were a central banker that I would want to take on both from a, what I would say is a consumer relationship. I'm really, a, central banks are really large scale wholesale operations. So big shift, so that there's that. And then there's the technology. I mean, think about a government entity like a central bank being responsible for the technological backbone that supports daily consumer transactions or some portion of those. Not a thing I love either. The, the government is not the best at building tech systems, building, maintaining tech systems. Um, what do we have? You know, our, our commercial banking, and I don't want to be you know, just commercial banking because you can look at all sorts of other participants in the financial system who have built technology. That technology is pretty darn good. And it, and it generally keeps up to date. So you know, I, for one, see private stablecoin as a better way to go than trying to have a ubiquitous CBDC from a traditional role of central banks, but also from a technological and, and, and resilience point of view. Um, and you did a terrific job of laying out the spectrum of possible providers of stablecoin. I do believe that on your spectrum, it will be either within the regulated banking system, where understanding any kind of fractionalization and reserves and the like is sort of time-tested, or it will be backed pretty much one-to-one -one with cash and short-term treasuries. I, I think we're gonna gravitate toward, toward one or both of those two alternatives, but having a what I would say is a levered 
stablecoin, which really just looks like a money market mutual fund uh, that is that is not regulated like a money market mutual fund is unlikely. Well, Jay, this has been a fantastic discussion. I know you're incredibly busy, so really appreciate the time. Uh, for anyone out there listening, I mean, uh, there's a whole host of people that listen to the podcast uh, from industry to crypto native and, and uninitiated people. What would be, you know, any parting thoughts to anyone listening out there? Um, um, I don't know if you want to do that, and but otherwise, I think this has been an excellent discussion. Yeah, I, here, here's what I would say. And, uh, you know, anytime that you come up with uh, a great innovation, or the, or the or start to apply innovation, uh, there there is going to be frustration about the pace of uptake. But I think if you look at um, uptake over the last, uh, what I would say is uptake over the last uh, five years, you should be heartened uh, that the direction of travel is one in favor of both um, uh, market efficiency and regulatory respect. Mm-hmm. Said another way, if you, if you eliminate the short-term bumps in the rear view mirror, uh, it, it, we've come a long way. Jay, this has been, like Santiago said, this has been an awesome conversation. I actually have one super quick question to ask you, which is when you were uh, in the uh, chairman of the SEC position, there's all these crypto people who are always tweeting at now Gary Gensler, when you're sitting in that position, are you seeing these tweets? Are you seeing anything that happens on crypto Twitter, or are you completely ignoring everything? Um, look, you, you don't, you can't ignore everything, especially when people come up and say, "Hey, you, this one, this one's really funny. Have you seen this?" You know, you know, I didn't know you looked like Homer Simpson. Uh, you know that kind of thing. But uh, uh, you know, you you accept that. As part yeah. of one of these jobs, look the SEC, and and I'm I'm, I mean I think you heard I'm I'm very empathetic to whatever Gary has to do because 50 million American households are invested in the markets. It's your job to do the best you can for them, uh, but you're not going to make everybody happy. That's that's just life, and you and you have to accept that. But doesn't mean you doesn't mean you don't try. True. I think that's all you can do. So Jay, want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I hope you did as well. I did. I did. Really great. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Jay. Thanks for coming on. Really, really great honor having you here. Amazing. Thanks, Jay. Take care. Okay. See you.